Good evening, everybody. It is December 7th, and today marks 79 years since Pearl Harbor. It's not funny, and it's always hard when you lead your show with a funny story. So I'll tell you something slightly comical is that I left the don't... See, I did it again. I left the subscribe button up on my video, and every time I restarted, the layer popped up, and I had to turn it off a bunch of times, and then the helmet wasn't in line, and the flag was reflecting light, and my new four-leaf clover was uh, was was not actually set correctly. It was a little bit not off-center. It was too straight. Folks, it happens sometimes. I took two days off. That's the problem, and I thought that would be good for me. I thought a couple days off, focus on with the family and working out and and just kind of kick back and relax, that didn't help very much. So maybe we'll just never take another day off again. I sure did miss you. My name's Matt from Don't Unfriend Me. We're not going to go through intros right now. Somehow I have to come up with a funny story about Pearl Harbor, and it's not a very funny time. But everyone knows that I reflect and I kind of process through humor. Anybody knows me well. So I'll do it now. I was working at Ultimate Electronics, and Ultimate Electronics was a a video store, that high-end video store, extremely high-end. Everyone wore tan pants and black shirts. They were all commissioned. And it was a sales atmosphere like you've never seen, a cutthroat and everything else. And my job was to help train the new people. And there were two salesmen inside the building that were, well, three actually, James Akata, who is Japanese, Claude Samori, who is Middle Eastern of some sort. I don't know. Claude and I aren't friends anymore. But uh, and then me, a, a, a German white boy. So we had everybody um, reflected in that in that establishment. And we were the top three salespeople in that store. And there were several other characters and all good guys, including Scotty Bertrand, who watches. And Scotty Bertrand will remember this story because he could not stop laughing. In fact, Scott was a manacle laugh, laughing type person. He would, it was deep belly and he could hardly breathe. He would turn red and almost seem like he was going to pass out from asphyxiation. But anyway, we would demonstrate and do what was known as demos. High-end audio files would come in and we would put the, the lossless audio and let them listen to SACDs, which were the best back then. And we would show them Blu-ray and everything else. And just recently, Pearl Harbor had come out. Now, Takeshi Fujimoto was a Japanese uh, first-generation American, and he came from Japan, and he looked about as Japanese as you could, but he was a young, nerdy kid. He almost looked Korean. He was very nerdy, skinny, and lanky, and you would have sworn he was Korean, but he was most, most assuredly Japanese, and that's because we're ignorant as Americans. Anyway, he found a new demo, and he was an HD DVD fan, and Blu-ray and HD DVD were going through a war. So, of course, we got all the HD DVDs we wanted uh, from Panasonic and the other companies that were behind it. So we went ahead and had this amazing Pearl Harbor movie, which the soundtrack was fantastic. The, the, blue, the HD DVDs looked fantastic. Everything was great about it. And it was a thundering demo, and we sold more TVs. Well, Takeshi decided that he was going to use this. He felt that it was a good thing to show Pearl Harbor being Japanese, and it showed sensitivity, and people loved the movie like Titanic. And he decided that that was going to be his movie. 
And he was a magical person at it. He would describe the Jap Zeros coming in with the Mitsubishi engines humming and rattling as they dive bombed the Arizona and the torpedoes whistled and launched as they crested the water and the wooden fins that were attached to the torpedoes would navigate the shallow waters of the harbor as it moved along at 50, 60 knots towards the impending doom of the Arizona and listen to the whole crack as it blows up. I mean, he just painted this picture that made the movie that much more interesting. And being Japanese, you almost, because people are inherently racist, is that, you know, you had to sit there and listen to it because he was Japanese. And he must know because maybe his uncle was there or something. And that's what people did. In fact, Takeshi at a few times said that he had relatives that were involved in this. He was masterful. And you almost came there on Friday and Saturday nights just to listen to Takeshi say this. Now, the one thing about Takeshi is that he wasn't necessarily the brightest person at times, and he made poor decisions, and he was young, and although a decent salesman, made some poor choices. Well, one time, a older lady and a man in a wheelchair came in, and I recognized this man, and I recognized his hat that he had ver- veteran of foreign wars hat on, and I also recognized that he was indeed a survivor of Pearl Harbor. Now, Unbeknownst to me and Claude and James, we all were going on break and we didn't think anything of it. And as we're sitting there eating lunch, Scotty Bertrand walks in and Scotty says, hey guys, what's going on? And I said, nothing. They're like, got a couple customers on the floor. We're fine. You guys finish your break. But as soon as you can, I need you to come out there. Takeshi's with a customer. And Claude and James think nothing of it. But I look at Scott and I said, Takeshi's with which customer? He's like, well, the guy in the wheelchair. I said, is there more than one? He said, no, no. And I said, the guy with a VFW veteran for foreign war hat? So he goes, yes. I'm like, what's he buying? Tell me he's buying a hairdryer or, or a stereo system or cables. He's like, no, he's buying a TV and a surround sound system. And I, I said, Jesus, Scott, the guy was in Pearl Harbor. He's like, yeah, so? And Claude's like, oh, my God, he's going to show Pearl Harbor to this guy. And Scott still, I don't think, picked up on it. But James Akata flew. I mean, like Bonsai flew out the door. And as we start running in the place the size of Best Buy, which all is an open floor, you can see everything. We see Pearl Harbor playing on the greatest TV known to man. And that was a liquid plasma by, I think it was Pioneer that did it. And it was beautiful. It was a beautiful beautiful TV, all 55 inches of it. And we could most assuredly hear the bombing. And as Takeshi is telling his story, because he doesn't understand what he's doing, you see the wife with her hand on her face like this. And as Takeshi's talking about the whole of the Arizona ripping up and all the water flooding in and, and the fires and the sailors who are ultimately going to die. We look at the man's face and he's not crying. I think if he had the power to stand, he would have stabbed Takeshi with his pencil because he wasn't watching the TV screen. He was watching Takeshi. And as we were all running, we stopped slowly and started to walk as our shoulders slumped and we watched this unfold. The moral of the story is when Takeshi was coming back and the man left, he's like, dude, 
That's the first time I haven't sold a TV when I've shown that demo. I have no idea what went wrong. None of us had the heart to tell Takeshi that he basically insulted a national hero and probably brought back memories that were not a good one. And we all made sure we walked him to the parking lot that night uh, so he would not have tire tracks over his dead corpse or tires as that wonderful, noble hero ran him over repeatedly. Folks, we have a good show tonight. Stay tuned. I hope you enjoyed this story, not necessarily the one with a huge punchline, but if you were there, I promise you would have laughed, although things that we found funny in the yesteryear aren't necessarily funny today, but a story nonetheless. Folks, don't unfriend me, and I guess it's appropriate to say don't unfriend me now after that story. It's wonderful to have you. Today is the 79th anniversary of Pearl Harbor and what a tragic and horrible event it was. We'll talk a little bit about what happened, what was the aftermath, a few other stories that and things maybe you didn't know. But the first thing I want to start with is the bravery of the men from World War II, World War I, Korea, Vietnam was unsurpassed. Uh, they are a generation that will never be eclipsed for their bravery, and the things that they went through were absolutely horrific. Pearl Harbor is none, no different, and neither is World War II, and it started with just a thought. Japan had had enough. They were done. I've taken some notes on this one. Although something I've studied extensively, I want to make sure I do it justice. Japan had had enough. They were done. And Japan realized that there were a few things that were happening, is that they were in a battle since 1931, and their job was to take over, and Japan was expanding into the East Asian Empire. And the reason they did this is they felt this was their manifest destiny, which is similar to the United States and the expansion into North America was our right. They felt that expanding into China was also theirs. You see, Japan was a country that lacked natural resources. They, their square mileage, their population has always been large. But the things like raw iron and oil, steel, these are things that escape them. And to be a superpower, those are two very, very important commodities that you must possess. And their expansion into China ultimately would help them do that. Well, the Americans wanted them to stop that, which is interesting because countries like Russia and Germany and England had all been expanding into China for centuries. And why we picked on the Japanese is because we could. That was one of our first mistakes. Because they were resource poor, what had happened is FDR had threatened them. Secretary of State, the State Department had essentially said to Japan that we're putting trade embargoes on you and blockades around you and you are no longer allowed to have oil or raw iron. This stalwarted their ability to have a military to continue moving their expansion into China, expanding their resources and having their country thrive. With this, Japan had a decision to make. And, and ultimately, they could go to war with America, which would be costly, and they knew that. But what they hoped for was a, an attack, an attack that would allow Americans to push back from the table and come and negotiate, similar to what happened in Vietnam. Obviously, this was way before Vietnam, but that was ultimately the, the, the way that, that Vietnam ended. 
And Japan had hoped that by destroying most of their naval forces and including getting their aircraft carriers, that America would be crippled and unable to attack the heart of Japan. They would pull back from the table, releasing these embargoes, and Japan would flourish once again. A lot of stories have been told about the Japanese, that their army, that the Imperial Army, was extremely ruthless and barbaric and savage during their fighting. They would dismember down below and above American soldiers. They would do things that were atrocious, putting heads on pikes. It was... The Japanese army was absolutely ferocious. They were warriors. They were battle-tested. They were not pushovers. And before now, before now that they are a peaceful country and pacifist, Japan is, they were not that way for so very long. There were such things as kamikaze pilots, suicide bombers. Their way that they fought war was not necessarily by honor and respect. That happened before war. And they demanded honor and respect. And once you encroached upon that, they were ruthless as anybody. However, the Japanese were not necessarily bloodthirsty when it came to their Navy. Their Navy was extremely highly educated people. A lot of them came from war colleges. Most of them were local fishermen. They adapted to the sea. They adapted to the coast. And they were a very intelligent people. And not pacifists, but certainly the calm before the storm. Uh, Yamamoto was an amazing admiral. There were so many great leaders in the Japanese Navy. And I've worked with the Japanese Navy since, and they have some different way of carrying themselves than uh, soldiers and the regular military. Now, that isn't to say that once they entered battle that they weren't extremely accurate and effective at completing their mission, because they were. But they weren't bloodthirsty. They were very deliberate uh, Gashin Shotan um, is a comment. Gashin Shotan. It means uh, kindling and lick gall, like sleep on kindling and lick gall. It's basically our American version of bite the bullet. The Japanese, including the Emperor Haruto, uh, asked for peace talks up until the very day that we strike, a couple days before we strike. Or for they, they struck us in Pearl Harbor. And understand there were several other countries that were, that were struck by the Japanese simultaneously or within 24 hours of when they hit us, including Hong Kong, Hong Kong and a few other places. This was not just a singularity to hit the United States. Um, one of the main reasons why the war happened is Cordell Hull, who's Secretary of the State, was extremely bullish, was extremely stubborn, and he forced Japan's hand. He was extremely disrespectful to them. Um, and was essentially a stalwart with their ability to carve up China. And it pushed the Japanese into losing face nationally. Now, there's a couple things you need to know about Japan and the Japanese people. Is honor is simply the most important thing, or was at the time, to Japanese people. They were a prideful people. Uh, they were not necessarily bloodthirsty. And for their reason to attack us was very similar with the reason why we responded to them, was pride. And if anyone thinks that we struck Japan for any other reason than pride, I will hopefully change your mind today. The problem is, is we underestimated Japan's pride. We underestimated their honor. They underestimated our convictions. So here are some stats and some important ones, and they're interesting. Um, oh, I also have some pictures here. I forgot to show you these. Um, this is Nomura. I'll show you him in a second. This is Cordell, Secretary of State that I talked to you about. You can tell he just looks like a pompous jackass, like most politicians. Hirohito is the emperor. 
very young here, had lived a full life. And ultimately, the way that this panned out and the way that this played out is that the Japanese had a choice to make. They knew that they were not going to survive the winter without oil. They knew it would make them vulnerable to their enemies. They knew they would not be able to continue their expansion and have their fleet and have the natural resources to compete on the world stage. And essentially, the United States did not want a third world power. They already had Russia and Germany to deal with. And of course, England was there as well as Italy. But as far as a prominent world power, it was Russia, it was Germany, and it was the United States and England. To have another world power on top of that stage is not anything that the Americans desired. They were already having poles to enter World War II, and they had resisted. They had brought a few pilots over into England. They had supported more of a proxy scenario, but had not gotten involved in a large-scale conflict. That all changed December 7, 1941. When we look at the attack, it's interesting. It happened on Oahu, and it was a battle of all four fronts. When we look at the devastation, it was incredible. Uh, I will go over some of the numbers, but it was an, probably one of the, the most excellent, well-thought-out and designed attacks ever perpetrated on any enemy, foreign or domestic, or, or any on our country for sure. Um, this was not 9-11. This wasn't left to chance. Nothing was left to chance. The thing is, what hurt us is our overconfidence. When we had our ship stocks, we did not roll them out to sea effectively. It was a holiday-type week, December 7. It was leading up into the holidays, and a lot of the sailors that were there and the Marines and, and the pilots were off on holiday. Military does revolving holidays, and they do three weeks. They usually do the first two weeks of Christmas and the first week after to go ahead and rotate people out and drop their bases down by a considerable amount. This was number one that hurt us. We were unable to have enough pilots. We were not sorting our sorting sortery sortery whatever sorting our fleet out of the harbor. But see, our overconfidence got us because there was no way to attack in the harbor. The waters were too shallow for torpedo, and we were confident that we would know if any bombers came, because obviously we were arrogant. However, the Japanese, who are extremely technologically proficient, altered their torpedoes with wooden fins and also changed the speed and the way that they worked so that they would be slow moving, but very, very effective. And this destroyed our fleet. The one thing that saved our bacon was that the aircraft carriers were out of harbor. Now, a lot of people think that the Japanese didn't know this, but they did and decided to attack anyway. Why? Because they felt getting our destroyers and frigates would be just as effective as hitting our aircraft carriers. Little did they know our resolve to drop nuclear bombs and how we would go ahead and do that and reach Tokyo using bombers and aircraft carriers, what had never been done before. However, the devastation had already been done. If we look at some of the numbers, but first I'll show you the map, there was an attack from all four sides, whether it was a reconnaissance plane, bombers, or Japanese Zero fighter torpedo bombers. We were attacked on all four sides in all areas of the base. Pearl Harbor, essentially, it came from the west in Pearl City, and on there you would have the Raleigh, the Utah, and the Curtis. Then you had the Oklahoma, Tennessee, Arizona, Nevada, the Vestal, the West Virginia, and then down south, the Helena, the Ogallala, and the Shaw, and Honolulu ships were all there. The oil, the oil storage tanks were down to the southeast, and then Ford Island was the bulk of our island. We had several ships that were out to fleet, but the ones that are hit are marked in blue, and obviously the red are the Japanese. 
The timeline of this, it's interesting. 6.10 a.m., Minesweeper USS Condor sights Periscope. Now, this was the first strike in the battle, and it actually wasn't done by the Japanese. It was done by the Americans. The Americans sunk a, um, a Japanese submarine. At 6.10 a.m., first wave of planes take off from the Japanese aircraft carriers 200 miles north of Oahu, as you can see from the graphic. First shots fired by USS War to the Japanese submarine. That was at 6.45, 35 minutes after takeoff. At 6.53, Ward Radio's Navy headquarters decoding process delays message. Now, the thing about the Japanese war is that decoding and message traffic and cryptology was one of the largest players in this war. And breaking the Japanese code was was one of the reasons why we were successful. Um, the thing is, is that cryptology and, and able to have command and control and communications is, is absolutely the most important thing you can have in war. And the fact that Japanese had kept it secret for so long helped them. It also helped the Germans and the U-boats, and it was killing the United States. Well, we had our own cryptology and communication, and unfortunately, it was highly overprocessed, which helped the, pro- the, the creation of the NSA later. But during that time, and the Office of Strategic Services ran all communication, and their cryptology was overall complicated and very, very difficult to decipher. And the problem with that is it delayed messages from getting through. It also delayed a message from the Japanese uh, ambassador, which the Japanese were supposed to warn us of the attack, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes. 702, radar station on Oahu spots unidentified aircraft heading toward Hawaii. At 720, Army Lieutenant disregards radar report. He believes it is a flight of U.S. B-17 bombers coming from California that were supposed to arrive that morning. At 7.40, first wave of Japanese aircraft reaches Oahu. Japanese aerial uh, commander orders attack at 7.49. 7.55, a coordinated attack begins from all fronts. At 8.10, USS Arizona explodes. In less than 15 minutes, the Arizona's hit. At 8.17, destroyer USS Helm fires it and sinks Japanese submarine at entrance to the harbor. At 8.50, and that was the second submarine that was hit. At 8.54, second wave of attack begins. At 9.30 a.m., USS Shaw explodes in dry dock. And at 10 a.m., Japan planes head back to carriers and ultimately back to Japan. And those are the ones that didn't kamikaze into the decks of the ships. In all, 353 planes were involved in this attack. 29 Japanese Zeros were lost in the attack. Only one ship that participated in the attack on Pearl Harbor survived the end of World War II. You don't think we systematically destroyed their Navy, do you? Japan's fleet consisting of some of 67 ships was located approximately 200 miles north of Oahu. We lost three major U.S. ships These never returned to service. That was the USS Arizona, which you can still find today in Oahu, which uh, I might have a picture of. The USS Oklahoma battleship and the USS Utah was a target ship. It was a battleship, and it was decommed to a target ship. USS West Virginia was the only ship to attack at Pearl Harbor present during Japan's formal surrender September 2nd, 1945. The aftermath of U.S. lives, 2,404 United States military and civilians were killed 64 japanese military were killed and one was taken prisoner i'll tell you a little bit about that in a second 
68 civilians were killed, 1,177 killed aboard the USS Arizona. Almost half. There were 15 U.S. Naval Medal of Honor recipients from this and 51 Navy Cross recipients. The Pearl Harbor Commemorative Medal was given to all military veterans of this attack later. There's an interesting story if you want to learn more about this. And although it doesn't have a lot to do with Pearl Harbor, the whole mission of the movie and the drive of the movie is because of Pearl Harbor. The movie is called The Fighting Sullivans. And it is about World War II, and it's about five sailors, Irish Americans, hence the little four-leaf clover over my shoulder, which will stay, I think, because I like the way it looks. Uh, They all served together on the USS Juno. They all joined because a good friend of theirs was killed on the Arizona. These five brothers all served on the same ship, and although the military discouraged and frowned upon family members serving, it was overlooked. They were all killed in action on sinking November 13th, 1942. If you have not seen the movie, it is extremely moving. It takes the five brothers and show them growing up with an extremely patient and loving father, but who was a train conductor. And it goes through their entire family and the love stories within. And it is an emotional and beautiful story and one that I have cried to many a times. If you have not watched it, please pick up The Fighting Sullivan. Here's 10 things that you need to know. America, like I said, first fired the shot. Number two, the whole attack only took two hours. It was so well executed, we didn't even know how to respond. I'll talk a little bit about foreknowledge. Well, let's just talk about it now. The entire attack took two hours. Now, there were rumblings. There were rumblings that the Japanese were up to something. There were reconnaissance flights that took place from B-24s that ultimately went over and started checking the southeastern portion Um of the Pacific, but but certainly not Hawaii. No one ever fathomed that Hawaii would be hit. They felt safe. They honestly uh, were more worried about saboteurs, so they brought their planes together and bundled their planes together, which made it easier for the Japanese zeros and bombers to hit. Um, they felt it would happen in Hong Kong, which they were right, or the Philippines, where MacArthur was leading guerrilla warfare tactics in the Philippines and holding that island, which was important. The whole reason that we wanted to hold the Philippines was because of the throughfare. And if you cut off the eastern ship, shipping lanes, we ultimately would not be able to resupply any war or any bases or anything in regards to logistics. So we had warning that something was going to happen. We had warning that the Japanese fleet had steamed and left port. Um, All of these things happened. There was message traffic that was going through. There was intercepted traffic from uh, small comms and also regular landlines that were being intercepted by the OSS. Um, All of this was overlooked, just like 9-11, that we had signs, we had things, but together they would tell a story, but apart with a lack of communication, with the lack of C3, command control communication, working harmoniously, None of them really meant anything. So we did have our suspicions. And the question is, and the question remains, and people have said that Winston Churchill had advanced knowledge, which is not true. That England had advanced knowledge, which is not true. They wanted us in the war. They needed our ships. They knew we were going to help. And we could only send so many tanks and so many nurses and pilots. Ultimately, we would have have to get into that war sooner than later. And the Japanese cutting our naval fleet in half certainly would not have helped the English. We could look that also that possibly that FDR looked the other way and had message traffic, or there were certain leaders that did. 
here's the thing is all of that matters not because we knew Japan would retaliate in some way, shape or form. We needed a reason to get into the war and Pearl Harbor was not it. We knew that Japan would cross the line at one point and then that would give us the ability to control our entry into the war where we wanted. But we also did not want to fight a war on two fronts, which ultimately almost lost us the war. Number three, aboard the USS Arizona alone, 23 sets of brothers perished. The USS Nevada tried to make a run for it, was leaving dock at that time, was bombed and hit several times and almost made it. They fought the entire way, but alas, did not. Five Americans managed to get airborne. Um, One of the pilots was named Welsh. He was recommended for the Medal of Honor for his heroism, shot down seven planes himself, but was denied because his, sorry, chicken shit commanding officer uh, said he took off without orders. Welcome to the military, folks. Number six, the Japanese really wanted to take out our aircraft carriers, like I said, but unfortunately, they settled for our frigates and destroyers, and they felt taking them out would ultimately end the war. Long-range bombers couldn't be launched from aircraft carriers. They felt that their military, their naval uh, supremacy at that point, which it really was, also with Germany involved with U-boats, they knew that they had superior numbers. What they were not counting on was our response. Americans captured a POW, which is interesting. You don't hear a lot about this. Kazuo Sakamaki. He actually uh, was kept in a POW camp for the entire war, um, which was in California. And he was released. And he actually worked, once the peace treaties were signed, in a Toyota plant here in the United States uh, and retired. Uh, The Day of Infamy speech was only seven minutes long. It was very curt. It was very short. And it was a declaration of war where we did not mention the word Japan. Canada technically declared war on Japan before the United States did when Hong Kong was attacked and several others the early mornings. Uh, Canada declared war about 16 hours before the United States did, which is interesting. Uh, Canada's The Canadians must have lost that hot temper when the Japanese did for some reason. Number 10, many Japanese tourists pay their respects at the Pearl Harbor Memorial. And I will tell you, spending many years in Japan, the Japanese are not proud of Pearl Harbor. They, I wanted to talk about, this is very important and people don't know this, is that the ambassador was supposed to warn the United States government that attack was imminent. And actually, they were going to warn that a strike was coming. We were in the middle of peace talks. We were in the middle of of actually establishing peace with Japan and at the table. And they had no, no intent at all to, to like see the peace through. But they were going to warn us because they felt it was cowardly to attack an enemy without warning. The problem is, once again, I alluded to it earlier, communication. Um, the, the man Kish, uh, Kisha Saburo Nomura, who is here, uh, went ahead and sent the communication, and unfortunately, because of language issues, was unable and was late to convey the message, almost an hour late, and by then it was too late. A lot of people don't know that. We don't hear that as Americans, that the Japanese, and although it was still wrong and was horrible, at least they tried to warn us. We could have done a few things. We could have made sure that more civilians were out of the area. We could have made sure that we scrambled some of our fighters and at least made an honorable fight. But ultimately, one hour would have given us nothing, and the Japanese knew that. It was more to save face than anything. On December 8th, Congress approved Roosevelt's declaration of war on Japan. Three days later, Japan's allies, Germany and Italy, declared war against the United States. And we were 
essentially in the midst of two wars inside of World War II on two different fronts. The United States detonated two nuclear weapons over the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki on August 6, 1945, respectively. It sent a clear message to Russia, and yes, it ultimately ended the war. And yes, we understand that we did some some amazing things up until that as far as being innovators of war, whether it's taking off bombers from, from aircraft carriers, whether it's the way we kind of changed strategy on how we fought on beachfronts. There were many things that we did that innovated the style of war. But perhaps one of the most destructive and worst things ever done on this planet by any industrial militarized complex was the United States killing roughly 132 to 245,000 civilian Japanese people. I have visited Nagasaki and Bikini Island. I have seen them both. And I will tell you there is a calm, eerie, dead silence, as there is when you go into the memorial for the USS Arizona. And I brought up number 10 that Japanese tourists visit often and pay their homage and respects because it is not something that they are proud of. It is not something that they consider to be honorable. And the Japanese people are not to blame for what happened. When we look at Nagasaki and Hiroshima, it also had devastation that lasted longer than just a few weeks or a few months. It lasted generations. There were several movies that were filmed there. John Wayne was there and a couple of others. The entire staff, production team, sound team, everybody got cancer from the radiation and died eventually from cancer. It was an insane war. It was a horrible attack. It was the worst devastation as far as a military assault on our country um, that obviously from the amount of devastation and cost of human life uh, was similar to 9-11. You know, I, I think the biggest thing that I take away from this is that there are still many people who are raw about this, who there are Japanese Americans who are absolutely frustrated at the way that they were treated as they were Americans and they were thrown in concentration camps, that dropping the bomb um, was uncalled for, that it was not a proportionate response. But I will tell you, it ended the war quickly and it saved hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Japanese lives and hundreds of thousands of American lives. And probably if we would not have dropped that bomb, we would be speaking German, Italian and Japanese right now. Uh, we were losing that war. We were not going to win that war. And we ended it quickly, which allowed us to focus on the true threat, which was the Eastern European bloc. Folks, I hope you learned something today. I hope you have found this to be interesting. I certainly love history. I love naval history. I love just about everything. This is a tragic day, and when we remember, remember the brave men and women who served. We remember the lives lost, and yes, we should also remember the Japanese lost. The Japanese have been an amazing ally to us for a better part of the last 60 years, and they have been truly one of the reasons that we have withstood China, North Korea, and Russian communist involvement in the Southeast for so long. I hope you enjoyed it, folks. Please let me know if there's anything I could do better. If there's something you want to ask, if there's something you want to correct me on, because I'm not always right, please leave a message. 
down below. If you would also not mind if you could subscribe, like, and share on YouTube, I would appreciate it greatly. And what we go out on that we always go out on is the Veteran Crisis Hotline, 1-800-273-8255, press 1. If you are suffering from PTS or know someone who is, especially a veteran, please reach out. Make this phone call. It could save a life and make a difference. 22 commit suicide a day, 24 to 25 during the holidays. If you can't make that call, reach out to me and I'll make it with you. And you can also go to my website at www.dontunfriendme.com. Click the VCL link and you will be connected directly to the VCL via Skype. Thank you folks for staying with me tonight. I will see you live this evening. Have a good one. And let's remember our veterans today and every day. God bless.